Why do you think our socialites are going to want to hear this case today? I'm going to tell them Jackie's story, her fairy tale first date, and what she believed was true love. In reality, her first date was when innocence meets pure evil. Welcome to Socialite Crime Club. Today, we bring you roses for Jackie. This case is January of 2007. Gilbert, Arizona, we're gonna go to for this case. This case starts a little weird, so I'm gonna to try to piece it together, but we don't get the typical 911 call. We actually get a disturbance call where we have some parents that are at a construction job site and they're basically harassing one of the construction workers to the point that people think they're gonna get into a fight. Okay. Patrol has no idea what they're rolling into on this one. To kind of clean this up, I'm not going to necessarily go chronologically. I'm just going to explain, here's what it was. There's a missing girl. The parents of this missing girl found out who she was last with, which is this guy named Jonathan. And Jonathan works at a construction site. How did they find out who she was last with? Her sister. Her sister actually dropped her off. And I'll, I'll kind of get into that flow. So her sister tells her, her parents. parents. Okay that she was with this guy named Jonathan. Uh, the sister even knows the phone number. Okay. So apparently the day before, she goes missing on a Sunday. So the day before law enforcement gets the call, the parents actually call this Jonathan guy and they meet with him briefly. And he brings his girlfriend, who's uh, this girl named Mandy. And he was like, yeah, we hung out last night, but I dropped her off at this gas station. I haven't seen her since, like, can't really help you. And they kind of go opposite directions. Well, by the next day when Jackie, the missing girl, still has not come home, the dad is like, okay, something is wrong. And he wants to search Jonathan's truck. So he knows that Jonathan works at this job site through the sister and these conversations that they've been having. And so he shows up at the job site demanding to search the truck. Okay. And that's where this little Where back is this job site? It's in Gilbert, Arizona. It's a, actually a new mall. So the Santan Mall is being built. And this guy, Jonathan, works at the mall. So when law enforcement gets there, it's just chaos. Like the dad wants to beat him up. He wants to search the truck. Jonathan actually kind of seems like the victim of, hey, I don't know why this guy's harassing me. Go away. Like get out mm -hmm. of my truck. So once we kind of get everybody separated, it starts to come out. And okay. this is where we actually find out. On Saturday, the 26th, Jackie and her sister are going to go stay at a friend's house. Jackie had met this guy at a gas station, Jonathan. For most people, it'd be like, okay, you met a guy at a gas station. This was significant for Jackie. It was an entirely different type of meeting. Her parents, when they first met 20, 30 years prior to this, they met at a gas station. Her mom wow. was pumping gas on one side of the pump. Her dad is pumping gas on the other side of the pump. They start a conversation. They fall madly in love, and it's literally a happy ever after. Okay. Jackie is enthralled with this love story. Okay. Like, she just loves the way her parents met. She idolizes this relationship that they have. Oh, okay. So one day, she's pumping gas, and Jonathan pulls up next to her on the other side of the pumps. They've never met before. They start a conversation. She likes him. Uh, they go and have coffee, and now they're just kind of texting and calling back and forth. How long did they know each other before she went missing? This is about a week. Okay. It wasn't very long at all. And 
Jackie really wasn't allowed to date as a teenager, so she doesn't have a lot of dating experience at all. And she wants to go out on a date with Jonathan. So her and her sister are going to go stay at a friend's house so that Jackie can sneak out to have a date with Jonathan. And she's 19. She's 19. Okay. So there's a bunch of phone calls and text messages back and forth through that night. Around 1 o'clock, her sister takes her to this gas station where Jonathan is going to pick her up. And they meet at the gas station. The sister actually says, yep, he, she got in the truck and left. Mm-hmm. And then around 3.30 in the morning, so it's, it's early morning, the sister calls to see where Jackie's at. Jackie answers, and the sister said she sounds out of it. She just didn't sound like herself. Okay. And they were in some neighborhood, but they were lost. Jonathan ends up on the phone, and he says, we're leaving the neighborhood now. We're on our way back to that gas station. I'll meet you guys at the da- same gas station I picked her up at. Sure. So the sister went to that gas station and sat there for like two hours. Jonathan never shows up. Oh, no. The sister doesn't know what to do. She's just terrified because she needs to go home and break this to her parents. So eventually... What time were they expected home from the sleepover? Sometime the next morning, early afternoon. So she's got some time, and I think she's just hoping... Jackie's going to call. Jackie's going to call. And she's blowing Jackie's phone up. Like, she's just waiting. And then finally, about noon, she realizes, I've I've got to tell my parents. So she went home, told mom and dad, this is where dad gets Jonathan's number, calls Jonathan, wants to meet with him to find out, like, what's going on with Jackie. Jonathan shows up with his girlfriend, who is Mandy. They have this conversation. She's almost an excuse there, maybe? It's... Always Why would been, he bring his girlfriend? Yeah, it's always been interesting to me that he chose to bring Mandy. And I think it was for that little bit of insulation that, hey, there was really nothing between Jackie and I. Like, I have a girlfriend. We were just hanging out as friends, which at sure. 3 o'clock in the morning. It was weird. That is weird. And I, I don't think it really hit the dad until probably that evening, the next morning, where he's just losing it now because Jackie's not coming home. Right. The sister also knows where Jonathan works, and that's how they all end up at this work site. So as a detective who got called to this, patrols kind of started to sort it out, and then I get there with a couple of the detectives. But they realize this is a missing person. We need detectives. Yeah, so not only is it kind of this argument between Jonathan and this dad, it is a missing person. So we're like, all right, let's stop everything for a minute. Let's break down this timeline a little bit. Let's make sure we're getting all the information we need for the missing person. But it sounds like we have all the players here. Let's start right here. And so we're going to start with Jonathan's truck. And Jonathan is very cooperative, extremely cooperative in the beginning. And I've got a handful of pictures this of that day. This is his day. truck, the F-150. This is his truck where it was parked when police responded that day at the construction site. In fact, that little silver car you see behind it is one of the detective vehicles. And if you're listening in, you can view any of our evidentiary photos on our YouTube channel. Yeah. And, and the one of the reasons I wanted to put this truck out there for people who can see it on YouTube is this case is going to spiral here in a little bit. Where do you think you could take that truck? Um, anywhere. It has huge tires. It looks very like it can handle a lot off-road. Are actually. you going to worry if you scratch it or you dent it or ding uh, no. it? <laughs> no. 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 I'm not. Are those lights underneath the bumper? Well, that's because part of the bumper has come off. Oh. Um, so, yes, you're seeing lights that are typically in the black plastic bumper underneath the metal bumper. But oh, that bumper has been removed probably because he has run over things over the time. But, yeah, the, this is going to be really significant later on. Jonathan's very cooperative in the beginning, which for all intents and purposes, he seemed like, okay, he's – 
construction worker. He hung out with Jackie. He's more than willing to be cooperative. So he allows a cursory search of his truck. He consents to a search like, hey, I had nothing to do with this. I don't know what I have nothing the to hide. Yeah. Um, but there's some interesting stains. And just so we're clear, Jonathan's truck is a mess. <laughs> it is kind of a it disgusting mess. It looks pretty mess. dusty. Yeah. There was a couple of things that investigators immediately recognized like, hey, that kind of looks like blood. And this one's in the like the the door panel, where the kick panel, where you actually first step into the Where the, the evidence truck. marker A is at. Yeah, where that little evidence marker A. This is some very small, what appears to be aspirated blood. And what um, aspirated um, blood. B, yeah. Up by the window. And it's like if you have blood in your mouth and you're spitting it out. You sure. get little air bubbles in the, and that's why you know it's aspirated. So, but it's little pinpoint blood drops, and that's on the driver's window. And then on the passenger oh, window where that C is, there's some more, and it's right at the top of the window. Like the window may have been partially down, but not completely down. And whoever's spinning the blood out the window is getting these little tiny bits. Obviously, this is enough to raise suspicion that we're like, okay, but this, time out. Was this actually seen? At the construction site? Yes. This okay. is what really sparks things like, okay, stop. We need to dig into this a little bit further. Okay. So Jonathan has agreed to come to the police department for a consensual interview, and we are seizing his truck until we get a search warrant. And just so those who may not be familiar with this, because you can drive a truck and just take off, there's what's called this mobility clause. And what the mobility clause is, like a house is secure. You're not going to go hide your house in the time it takes me to write to a write search warrant. Right. With vehicles, it's a little bit different because they are mobile. So it gives law enforcement the ability that we can seize it. We're not going to search it, but we can control that vehicle until we get a search warrant. So nothing has changed or altered right. with it. Right. So we are seizing the truck at this point to get a search warrant. Jonathan's coming down to the police department, and we're just going to have a little chat, a very consensual conversation. And as we start to talk, and I'm one of the detectives who is interviewing Jonathan, three of us and he says look there's this diamond shamrock gas station it's on this intersection we were texting back and forth she wanted to get together i had no no issues with it so we went to this gas station her sister dropped her off it's maybe 145 150 in the morning is the time frame that he gives us mm -hmm. he's like yeah we hung out we went to this pool hall uh, we drove around for a while and then we end up going back to the Diamond Shamrock, the gas station, and I dropped her off and I went home. Is there video of them at the pool hall or anything? Well, we don't know yet. This is all part of the interview, but okay. this is his story. And like, again, he's very consensual, very nice. We don't have enough to hold him. We're processing the truck. It gets to a point where he's kind of like, hey, can I go back to work now? Because remember, he's... <laughs> We He's took, still on the job. Yeah, we took him from the job site. A really profound moment. And this is one of those profound moments of my entire career. In the building we're at, it's a two-story building. The interview is upstairs. As I'm in the elevator with him, we're going down to the first floor, and he starts to just small talk with me like, so, hey, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you do? I'm not going to have this conversation with him. I'm like, yeah, no, not much. I just work a lot. And he's like, yeah, I really like riding three-wheelers and four-wheelers. So he's telling me his hobbies now. And I'm like, okay. Usually in Arizona, you do that in the desert. Yeah, he's like, well, and then he gets into, that's why I love Arizona. I love hanging out in the desert. I love riding these four-wheelers. I four-wheel my truck all the time. Which I know a lot of great hiding spots. He says, have you ever been out to Sycamore Creek, which is a... a kind of a recreational area to the north of Phoenix Mesa area. And I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I don't hang out there. So I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with some Sycamore Creek. He's like, yeah, I used to love going out there when I was kids or when we were kids, we used to go out there all the time. But it's like, it's gotten so crazy. Like there's people go out there shooting all the time now. So uh -huh. like, you'll be out there riding your four wheeler and like people are shooting at you. So he's like, I just stopped going. It's just too dangerous out there. People are just intentionally shooting at well, it, there is a lot. TVs. There is a lot of like target 
shooting out there like people okay. go out there to shoot their guns all the time it's arizona like everybody's got a gun and everybody wants to go in the desert and it's shoot the wild west out here yeah but he's basically painting this picture that this place he grew up in when he was a kid and how much he loved to go out in the desert he can't go out there anymore because just people are crazy and they're shooting sure. all the time and we finally get to the lobby and i kick him out of the elevator and i'm going back to work the case it was very interesting what he offered up in his childhood in the that elevator. you didn't realize was going to be important yeah to your point uh, now that we have some information, let's go start pulling some video, right? Let's see what we can find here. We run to the gas station and we pull the video. And sure enough, there's Jonathan in his truck pulling up. He goes inside. I think he buys a Gatorade, if I remember right. So we actually have really good video of him inside paying for the Gatorade. He comes out, gets in his truck. Jackie and her sister pull up. Jackie gets out of her car, gets into his truck. You see her actually getting in the passenger side of the truck. Oh, no. Jackie doesn't realize she just got into the, a truck of a complete monster. We don't realize Jonathan's background at this point as much either. So that's where the investigation also is going to start is, okay, who is Jonathan Burns? We start looking into his history. Jonathan Burns had quite the checkered childhood. He was kind of a shithead. He was just a mess all the time. When he was 17, he had done enough burglaries that they decided to charge him as an adult. So even though he's 17, he's getting... He's getting the real deal now with his crimes. Mm -hmm. And he gets sentenced to three years in prison from these burglaries that he did. That's 1999. In theory, he should be out by 2003, 2002. But when he goes to prison, he starts off with, he actually gets in a couple fights. He starts promoting prison contraband, which is typically drugs. And then in 2000, he tries to burn down the Yuma prison. So he's not a role model prisoner. No, it's never good when you get an arson charge and you're in prison. <laughs> like, that's right. not good. So what should have been like a three-year sentence for him ends up being almost seven. Um, he doesn't get out of prison until August of 2006. Which doesn't set him up for a very living a very quality lifestyle. Right. That's that all he's known. His adult life, he's never been outside of prison. Sure. So August of 2006, he's released. He gets this construction job. Less than six months, five months later, he meets Jackie, just coming out of prison. Okay. While he was in prison, he had 46 disciplinary infractions. Like, we talk about this every once in a while with different That's a prisoners. Lot. <laughs> it's an incredible amount. Like, this is why he couldn't get out of prison. He just, he can't behave. Like, he's just... He just doesn't learn his lesson. No, he does not learn his lesson at all. So, we do the interview. He leaves the elevator. We start to be able to piece together a little bit of the timeline of what he told us, some video. Eventually, we're going to get Wait, his phone records. Wait, did you find records. video at the pool hall at all? Could no. you corroborate that statement? No, because they never go into the pool hall. They stay in the parking lot. But the cell phone that we'll get into here in a little bit corroborates it. But basically what we can figure out is from about midnight to the time they meet, there's a lot of phone calls and text messages. We see that like clearly they're meeting. Yeah. Uh, 145, he picks her up from about two o'clock to 3.30. So about an hour and a half, they're in the parking lot of this pool hall. And then at 3.30, they leave and they go to this unknown neighborhood, but it's pretty close to the construction area that he works at. And he stays there till about 4.45, which is when the sister calls. One of the other things that stood out in the interview is when we asked him, well, why were you in the neighborhood? And his only response was, well, sex happened. And I, I realized to a lot of people, they may be like, okay, whenever you just hear a very frank, well, sex happened, sex doesn't typically just happen. Mm -hmm. That's a bad, that, that's a red right. flag. There's some flirting going on, especially with a 19 year old girl. It's her first date. Right. It could very well be her first kiss. It could be the first time she's done anything. So I'm sure 
there was probably more than just sex happening. Yeah, but when he summarizes it, oh, sex happened. It sounded sinister. Oh, yeah. Red flags all over the place. But we don't have enough to hold him. So we release him. We're going to continue the investigation. We're going to get our first big, big break on this case. Mm -hmm. We get a call from, it's actually the dad. And what happened is a maintenance worker at an apartment complex had found Jackie's purse in a dumpster. And in Jackie's purse, she has her college ID. She's going to school, so she has a college ID. Maintenance guy calls the college. College calls Jackie's phone, which obviously she doesn't have, so they leave a message. Dad is monitoring Jackie's messages because he still thinks he has a missing daughter. Mm -hmm. And Dad hears the message from the college that this maintenance guy found her purse. So he calls us. We go to the, the apartment complex. We seize the entire dumpster. Obviously, we get the purse, but we take the entire dumpster. We bring it back, and we start processing this dumpster was the dumpster completely full it was pretty full it was it was a pretty healthy job trying to get through the dumpster sure In how long did that take you guys a couple hours like we okay. got through it fairly quickly we're going to end up finding her panties okay her bra her sandals and her shirt how far away was the college from the crime scene or from the neighborhood i should say not the crime quite scene, a ways quite a ways it's actually really close to jonathan's house it's about a mile from Jonathan's house. Okay. It's an area she does not hang out in at all. Uh, so obviously another red flag. The shirt, though, had a very interesting soot pattern. When you open the shirt up, it almost looked like tie-dye, but instead of using colors, it's like soot and stipple. And what stipple is is when you fire a gun, you get the burning gunpowder that comes mm -hmm. out of the end, and it burns into things. And I'm looking at this, and there's two holes. They look consistent to bullet holes. And I'm trying to understand like, okay, but the stippling doesn't make sense because it's kind of like this tie dye pattern. Mm -hmm. And then finally it dawns on me, oh crap, it's wrapped around the end of his gun. And he used her shirt to do that. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out like, okay, is that what's going on here? So we actually ran to Kohl's and we bought a shirt almost identical to the one that we just found, came back to our range. We wrapped it around the end of one of our guns, like the shirt just really tight around the end. Mm -hmm. And we pushed it up. I don't know if you remember those little mannequins. They, they call them the numb johns. Yeah. Like it's this uh -huh. mannequin, but it's like this thick plastic so you can shoot it. Yeah. We wrapped the, the shirt. The ones that you usually punch right. or like hit with your baton. Right, right. Uh -huh. We wrapped the shirt around the end of one of our guns and we push it up against the numb john and we fire. And then we open up the shirt. It was eerie. It was almost an identical match to what her shirt looked like. That is crazy. I think he tried to use her shirt to silence. To muffle the sound. To muffle the sound of when he, he shoots whatever he shoots. There is a little bit of blood on the shirt. Obviously, it's too early to determine whose blood. So we're going to package all that up. But now, obviously, this case has gotten much more serious. Um, the fact that we found panties, that's never good either. So we're going to send all that off to the lab. Our biggest concern right now is we have potentially a killer Definitely maybe a sexual assault suspect that's out on the loose. And a missing 19-year-old. And a missing 19-year-old. We are able to have a really good meeting with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office where we present everything. And this is still that Monday afternoon. We present, okay, this is where we're at with this case. We would like to go arrest Jonathan. We're going to serve a search warrant at his house. We'd like to go arrest him and get him in custody as soon as possible before he can destroy evidence or hide or flee or run or whatever. Mm -hmm. They agree to charge the sexual assault because of what we found with the panties and everything else. So we are writing a search warrant at this point for Jonathan and we take him into custody. This is going to be our second interview. And he agrees after we read Miranda to do another interview. And your second interview is at the police department. It is. Him. It's at the police department. As this interview is happening, 
we're getting confirmation that the stains we saw in the vehicle are blood. We don't know whose blood it is, but they, it sure. is testing positive for blood. And we find Jackie's earring, one of her earrings. Okay. So now we know that one of her earrings is in the truck as well, which is a little bit different than, hey, I picked her up and I hung out with her and then she left. Like we find this earring under the seat in the back seat. Like, yeah. how did it get back there? We start interviewing Jonathan and I actually thought he was going to confess to this crime. Why? He would pause. He would never deny being violent or forcing sex with her. Or did he rape her? Like, did he kill her? Where is she at? Did he dump her somewhere? Like, and he was just very obscure with his answers, but he would just never come out and say, well, I didn't do that. I don't know why you're talking to me. Mm-hmm. He, he would kind of just like, eh, you know, things happen. It was just a... He was super nonchalant. Yeah, very nonchalant. And there was a couple times where we would just be very confrontational with him. Like, hey, we know, we know you raped her. And he never denied it. You know, we're going to find evidence that confirms that. Like, Uh what'd you do? And he he wouldn't say anything for me. He just kind of sat there and he's like, well, you know, things happen. And we'd push a little harder, but he would never be offensive. He never wanted to stop talking. He just kept going with it. It almost sounds like he was just tinkering with you You to see how far he could push you. Yeah. So we get towards the end. And at this point, we're also getting phone records. So we rush the phone records. And we can see that his phone, after he passes, and he does pass the gas station that he says he dropped her off at. Mm -hmm. But after he passes that gas station, he goes north of Phoenix for four hours. Could you tell by his phone records if he ever ever stopped for a period of time at the gas station? No, no. We just don't see that type of clarity, especially back in 2007. We don't have that much detail. I see. But we know the time he leaves the the general Mesa area. Sure. And we know when he gets back and we can put him out in the desert for about three hours, almost four hours, which is a long time. So we're starting to confront him with this and he's like, I don't know. Definitely long enough to get rid of some evidence. Yes. Exactly. It's interesting because he really starts to manipulate the conversation now. Like, well, I don't know why the phone records would show that. I'm at home. Like, what are you saying? We're like, well, we know you went out of town and came back or your phone didn't. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to explain to him at this point, And we are kind of playing a little bit with the evidence where we're telling him, hey, we're going to find her. Like, we know where you went. We can see it in your phone, which we couldn't. We just knew a general direction. Do the right thing and tell us. Towards the end of the interview, he tells us it's a big fucking desert. So it's almost an admission of guilt, but not. Yeah. And th- that was literally his answer to, you know, we're going to find her. We know you dumped her in the desert. And his response is, well, it's a big fucking desert. Did you just want to reach across the table and punch him in the face? Yes, it was tough. Like, that's one of those cases where as a detective, you're like, game on. Like, this dude is going to go to prison the rest of his life if I have mm-hmm. anything to do with it. Well, the worst part is, is while you're angry at all of this, you also have angry and scared parents oh, yeah. in the background waiting for some news from you of what happened to my what daughter. Happened? Where is she? Right. And that's where we're going to go next. Okay. We start to organize searches to go search this desert because he's right. It is a big desert. The community outpouring on this case was one of the most significant cases I've ever, not just worked, but seen, mm-hmm. where you talk about a community getting behind a family. It was awe-inspiring. It was crazy what we were seeing. 
we would set up a search area like, okay, we're going to go search this area and Highway 87. You're going to hear me talk a lot about Highway 87. Um, Highway 87, we're going to search in this area. The first couple weeks, we were getting like three, 400 people, just random citizens showing up like, hey, we want to search. Going towards the end of the second week of the search, it wasn't uncommon for us to get thousands of people. We have, How are you coordinating those search efforts to make sure that there wasn't actually evidence destroyed or missed? Or? We weren't because a lot of people were doing stuff on their own. And that was one of our concerns is, hey, if anybody finds anything, don't touch it. Just stay where, with it and call us. Mm -hmm. We actually had a flight school. There's a flight school in Mesa that started donating their flight hours for their instruct, like because you have a bunch of students having to log these hours and they were flying helicopters all over the mountains <laughs> looking for Jackie. Like sure. the amount of effort that went into looking for Jackie was just crazy. We're trying to, at the same time, lock down like, okay, there's thousands of square miles for us to search out here in the desert. Mm -hmm. And for those of you not familiar with Arizona, like we're not in the flatlands of the desert. We're actually kind of starting to get up in the mountains. So it's very rugged, jagged, rocky terrain. It's hard to get in and out of. Um, so there's just a lot of challenges with that. We start looking at his phone and the problem is we're seeing good activity on his phone while he's with Jackie and we can confirm like, nope, he, when he picked her up, they went to the pool hall for the amount of time he said. Were you able to look at Jackie's phone too? Yep. And it, it travels with him. So okay. no doubt about that. When he says they go to the neighborhood where sex happened, both of the phones are in the neighborhood. When he says he goes back to the Diamond Shamrock to drop her off, you can actually see the phone passes and what you would expect would be the proximity. Mm -hmm. But then he goes out into Mesa and then he goes north. And as he's going north, kind of getting out of town, the phone records stop. There's just no more activity. activity. And then about 10 o'clock the next morning, he hits a cell site coming back into Mesa. So you can see, okay, he's not home yet. And then you see the next one's at his house. So you can kind of see when he's coming back in. But there's this four-hour gap, and we just can't. You can't account for Can't account for it. We are starting to get a lot of national attention on this case. Uh, a lot of big news media is covering it. We're also working on a search warrant for his house. So when we get the search warrant for his house, we're going to make some pretty crazy discoveries there too. He also has a car, a little Honda Accord. And oh. the trunk of the Honda Accord, we find a bloody pair of pants. So it's his pants, uh, but there's some blood on the knee. There's some blood on uh, one of the thigh areas. So we get blood on pants, which is never a good sign. We come across a gun case. And this piqued our interest for a number of reasons. Obviously, we're working a missing person. Any weapons are interesting. But Jonathan is a prohibited possessor. And what that means is because he has prior felony convictions, he's not allowed to have a gun. But in his house, there's a gun case. In the gun case, there's a little tiny manila envelope. And in that envelope is a casing that was fired from this gun and it was registered on the East Coast, and they actually require this firing, if you will, so that they have a sample of the bullet. So before they sell a gun on the East Coast, they fire the gun and put a sample of what that round would look well, like. Well, they put the casing in this okay. manila envelope with the serial number, and then the, the bullet, the round itself that they fired, goes into a lab and actually gets entered in what's called Nibin. Okay. Uh, but there's certain states that require this. So we're thinking, holy cow. This is a gun that is already entered into the bullet database for law enforcement. This is really cool. Right. And we have a serial number. Mm -hmm. So did they have who bought the gun? We start working on that. ATF gets involved with us. And yes, we are able to track down who bought it. And it was purchased by Mandy, his girlfriend. How long prior to this? Just after he got out of prison. So mm. fairly recent. Why would she buy him a gun right after he gets out of prison? For a prohibited possessor? 
don't yeah. know. Sounds like a criminal charge. Um, hmm. We'll work on that as we go. Not funny, but kind of funny. You know, I always say no matter how crazy or how horrific a homicide investigation is, there's always these little moments within there that's like, okay, that was actually pretty funny. We are going to take the pee traps from all of the sinks, all of the drains in mm-hmm. the house. And if you're not familiar with the pee trap, it's that little U-shaped piece of plumbing Under the underneath sink. the sink. And the reason we take that is if he had a bunch of blood on him and he came home and he washed his hands, some of that residual might get trapped on debris, hair, whatever it is mm-hmm. on the pee trap. So imagine if we're able to find Jackie's DNA in, in the pee traps. Sink. Exactly. It just helps tie it. So one of our detectives is trying to take off the pee trap and he's not very mechanically inclined. So he's really struggling. Okay. And what a lot of people don't realize is the you part, the bottom part of that pee trap just contains a bunch of goop and grime yeah. from your sink. It's terrible. It's gross. So as he's trying to pull it out, he actually gets it out, but it pops off. Oh, it no. like spills on him. Ooh. He starts throwing up all over the place because it's just this rancid odor. Like actually throwing up or like his gag Like reflex. he's doing the gag reflex. Like the, yeah, like the dry heaving. He's got to run out of the house and then he throws up out of the house in the, the driveway. <laughs> Um, ways not to seize evidence. We don't want to contaminate that evidence. He didn't put like a bowl or anything under there. He kind of deserved it, though. We all thought it was pretty funny because he's that guy. Uh, You know, though, it's these things that um, a lot of people don't get to hear about behind the scenes of an investigation that happen that are just like, oh, my gosh. I never realized that a detective would have to deal with that or do something as gross as that, right? Well, and that's kind of what made, like I said, there's always these little funny pieces because everybody's really serious on this case. Obviously, like everybody's mm-hmm. bringing it's their a big A-game. deal. Yeah, we are we are doing everything. I'm sure a we lot can. of hours went into this every single day too. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, we were still doing the investigation, but also coordinating searches and doing searches. Most of our detectives, myself included, we were sleeping in our cars. Like we were working 20 hour, 22 hour days and just catching an hour here, an hour there of sleep for weeks on end. Like Mm -hmm. it, it was a very intensive uh, process and we were getting all this national attention. So we're feeling a lot of pressure. We get to the point where we're not finding her and it's time to, okay, we need to change our tactic here. We're doing the same thing over and over every day and we're not yielding any results. How far along in the investigation were you? Probably about two weeks now, almost two and a half. So So you're also potentially dealing with environmental factors for evidence loss as well. Yeah, and I think what you're referring to or where you're headed there is if she is dumped out in the desert, her body's decomposing, the more she decomposes, the more evidence we lose. Right. Yeah, 100%. So we're we're starting to stress out a little bit. And I'm not going to lie, like you start to feel that pressure where you're seeing the news every day and it's national news that this police department can't find this victim. Right. They fear that she's dead, but they can't find her. And them. you're the lead detective. And I'm I'm one of the lead detectives. I'm okay. running more of the technology side of this investigation. Okay. So I'm going to hit the reset button on the evidence. And what I mean by that is I'm going to start reexamining all the stuff that we've seized, just stop running around trying to search for things and let's make sure we've got all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed on what we have seized. So mm-hmm. I've got Jonathan's phone records from AT&T, which back then it was singular actually. And then we have his phone. Okay. I've been working the phone records and we see him go out and we see him come back, but I can't get any further of where he was at when he's out in the desert. When I get his phone, I have to write a search warrant for it, even though it's in property because we seized it when we first arrested him. I have to write a search warrant to take it out of property to actually turn it on. Yeah. Right? Look in the contents of the actual device itself. Yeah. And remember, this is 2007. Like this is an old crappy flip phone. It's not like a nice smartphone. Right. It's a dumb phone. <laughs> 
So you were still using letters or numbers to text. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You had to use the actual dial pad. You use the number three for the letter E at that. Yes, time. yes. So I open it up and I've got the phone records from AT and T and his calls are broken up into folders basically on this phone. So I'm looking at all of his outgoing calls in his outgoing folder and I'm mm -hmm. going through and I'm marking them off on the records and I get every, all the outgoing. I go to the next folder, which is incoming and I'm marking them off and sure enough, they all line up, but I notice I'm not at the bottom of where you can scroll to folders. So I go one more folder and it's missed calls and I'm looking at the phone and I'm seeing all of these missed calls and I'm looking at the records and there's no missed calls. The they records. didn't provide them. They didn't, Singular didn't put them in the records. But the significance here is if the phone is registering a missed call, it connected to a cell site. Right. right? It's the only way it knew that it missed the so call. So you called Singular back, I hope? Immediately. And hey, we've got missed calls here. Can you please rerun the records? Make sure that we're seeing missed calls. Uh, they did it very quickly for us. In fact, the lady was even, she knew the case because she'd been seeing she'd it. She'd been watching yeah. it. Yeah. So she's like, yep, we're on it. Uh, so within about an hour, I get it back. 65 additional cell tower connections during the critical time of when he's with Jackie. And that was within a couple of hours? About a four-hour period. That's like stalker. This was Mandy, wasn't it? Oh, the missed calls. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, now we'll, I'm we'll putting the, the See, girlfriend together. You're jumping ahead just because you're like, Sorry. okay, somebody's getting awfully stalkerish. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 65 calls that connected to cell sites that weren't in the original records. 24 of those 65 is when he's out in the desert with Jackie. Oh, this is good. Okay. It is. Well, it her is. calls are good. Yes. Um, and yeah, that was my first thing is like, who has 65 missed calls <laughs> in like four hours? And it is. It's from Mandy's phone. We actually find out later on when we start poking into this because Mandy starts talking. We interview Mandy. At one point, Mandy had called Jonathan that night when he's with Jackie Mm -hmm. And she actually talked to Jackie for a minute. So I she know. knows Jonathan is out with Jackie. Well, when they well, go... Well, she only knew that because Jackie answered the phone. Right, right. So right after that, she's blowing Jonathan's phone up because she thinks he's out with another girl. Do you know what time that call actually happened? It was earlier in the evening, probably pool hall time. So when they, after he picks her up sometime while well, they're at the pool hall is where mm -hmm. that one occurs. And then after that, he just stops answering, but he doesn't turn his phone off. I wonder if that's when, I wonder if he got mad at Jackie at that point. I mean, I know that's pure speculation, but. But yes, it's a very key factor. And thank God Mandy was super jealous over this. Like her blowing up Jonathan's phone is about to put release. a nail in his coffin. Oh, it's, it's coming. Okay. So now that we have these other 24 calls, I start looking at the tower patterns. And what I'm noticing, what I mean by the tower patterns, I'm looking at the order and the sides of the cell sites that his phone is hitting while he goes out into the desert and as he comes back. And you would think like, let's just say for the sake of clarity to make it easy for the, our listeners, as you're leaving town, there's cell site one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. So as you're driving out and your phone's being you're connecting blown up, with all this. you hit one, two, three, four in order. And then you turn around and you come back, you hit four, three, two, one, right? Yeah. It's not what we saw. He hits one, two, three, four going out, but then he hits this other really weird combination of cell sites coming back in that are totally different. And to me, I immediately recognized, because I had been doing quite a bit of cell phone work at that point, he didn't take the same route. He went out one way, but he came back another way. And there's some rivers out here that restrict you that you have to cross at certain areas. So my nerdy technical mind is immediately thinking, if we can figure out 
his route out and his route back, I think we have enough that we can identify a search area. But I need coverage areas. I need to know where those cell sites How far interact. they actually provide right. coverage. So I call Singular back and I'm like, hey, Singular, I need coverage maps. And they're like, yeah, we can we can help you out with that here. And they send it. And this is what I get. What are you um, supposed to do with that? <laughs> I don't know. I pretty much threw it away. Uh, those of you that can't see, it's just a bunch of blobs of color. One of the problems is the purple color that you see. It's like, all pixelated. Yeah. It looks like an Atari game, right? But that big purple color where it kind of goes up into the corner of the screen. Yeah. Jackie's somewhere out there. Oh what I gosh. needed to know is where does the purple end? And when you send it to me and it runs off the page, it doesn't help. Yeah, that looks like you, I don't know if you ever took like a basic coding class when you were in grade school. Yeah. But that's what that map looks like. Yeah, you're supposed to like make a face using computer code and your face look like that. So this does absolutely nothing. No, it was a mess. And so I realized at this point, like, okay, I still think that I'm onto something. I do believe that we're going to be able to get the search area, but we've got to create our own coverage maps. And now mm -hmm. there's tools and equipment. In fact, we, as a company, when we had our, our cell phone tracking company that that we catered to law enforcement, we really promoted these type of tools and they're very common now. But in 2007, they weren't so common. So yeah. I had to get nerdy. And what I did is I wrote a search warrant for his phone and I explained to the judge, your honor, I wanna take this phone out into the desert with me and I'm going to just make calls to it and from it, to my phone. But I'm gonna put a GPS tracker on the car that I'm driving and I'm gonna go out into the desert and I'm just gonna drive this giant grid pattern making phone calls nonstop. Um, and I did it for three days. I destroyed my work truck. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just took it everywhere in the desert? Everywhere I could. It was so scratched up. Like I ruined a town, a city truck, if you will. So how many miles do you think you drove altogether? Oh, I, it was well over a thousand, which doesn't sound like that much. But when you're just going back and forth on these little dirt roads, it was mm -hmm. t as much as I could literally for three days. That's all I did. When I got done, I wrote another search warrant for Jonathan's cell phone records back to AT&T so that they would send me the tower information. Well, I had a log of every single call that I made and received with the latitude and longitude of where I was at. And what I was able to do is take the new records, overlay that with my log, and now I have my own coverage map. As I'm doing this- This is a very tenacious thing to do. <laughs> A lot of detectives would not do that. This Actually, this case really changed the way law enforcement looked at phone records. There was a lot of national attention. I ended up teaching all over the nation what I did on this case, and it was replicated on a lot of other high-profile cases. And now it's actually done through what's called drive testing. Uh, but this is one of the first versions of legitimate drive testing that was done. So yeah, kind of pioneering a little bit of a, a, a field here. It's really good that some actual tools came out to Dried oh, so much easier on. than this nonsense. Get this though. As I was out in the desert driving around, I get a call from another detective and he's like, dude, you're not going to believe this. You got to turn on channel three. And I'm like, I, I'm out in the desert driving around. He's like, well, Alison Dubois is on Oprah talking about our case. I don't know if you remember Alison Dubois. I do. She was a medium. She had a book. She also she, had, she a had a movie. A she, uh, yeah, she had a. It was on like network TV called The Medium. Yes. But Alison Dubois is an actual person. She lives in our jurisdiction. And did she know where the body she's was? She's a psychic. There's one thing, and don't get me wrong. Like I've watched The Medium. I thought uh -huh. it was cool. I've I've actually met her once before. She'd probably never remember me. But uh -huh. she seemed cool. Okay. I was always a little bit chapped that instead of coming to the police department and being like, hey, here's where I think Jackie is, she flies across the country and tells Oprah instead. Oh, my 
Yeah. Well, I was actually wondering, did she ever reach out to anybody at the PD no. and you just didn't know because no. you were actually she investigating? Never. She talked to Phoenix PD about this case because that was kind of who she was working with on a lot of her medium cases. Uh, she never reached out to our police department. But she went on Oprah and she told Oprah mm. that she does see an actual funeral and that we would find the body and that mm -hmm. she does believe Jackie's in the desert. Okay. And she's next to an embankment. There's embankments all over the desert. <laughs> Was she specific about which one? No, it was just an embankment. So, yeah. That, so did yeah. you go look at all the embankments? I was working on it. I was driving as much <laughs> as I could. So I get the phone records back. She was on Oprah, I think, on Wednesday. Okay. Friday mid-afternoon, I get these records back. It took me about two and a half, three hours to condense it down. And by Friday late afternoon, I had a new search area. And what was really cool, and we're going to try to do a visual for those of you who are listening to this, you got to go to YouTube to watch this piece. Okay. But essentially what I did is I looked at the routes that I had driven, all these different routes, and then I started comparing them to Jonathan's phone records the day that he went out there with Jackie. And I found like, okay, if I go out this way and then I make a loop and I come back on this road, nope, doesn't work. Okay, what if I go out this way and I make a, nope, that doesn't work. And after running about seven of these scenarios, I find one of the scenarios of a route that I took that lines up perfectly. Like I'm hitting cell sites at the same time difference that he is going out and coming back. Were you able to calculate your speed with it too? The whole thing. Okay. Like some of them are much slower because you're on a dirt road. Some yeah. of them you're actually on the highway. The only place I was running into a problem at first is I was hitting a cell site coming back about 45 minutes before he did. Interesting. And I don't know how long it takes to dump a body. I'm sure you could probably enlighten our audience a little bit on that. Oh, I could enlighten them on how long? I guess it depends on how far you want to take the body. Yeah, are you going to drag it three miles into the desert? or Right. Are you just going to get lazy and dump kind of it off somewhere a half a mile in? At an embankment. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But what it dawned on <laughs> me is, hey, this 45-minute window is stagnant. What I'm seeing is the car going out. He's he getting stopped. to this area. He's stopping for 45 minutes and he's coming back. And when I replayed the numbers with that scenario, mm -hmm. everything lined up beautifully. Got it. So crunching that, we went from thousands of square miles to a three square mile search area. And that was Friday night. That he was within for a 45 minute period. 45 minute window that we felt really, really confident. He's in this area for this three square miles for 45 minutes when he's Got out it. there with Jackie. Okay. We found that Friday night, we found her on Sunday. So she is found actually by one of the volunteers, uh, finds her in that area. Um, so Sunday we actually find Jackie's body. How far off the road was she? She was actually really close. Uh, one of my GPS points of my grid testing was probably a hundred yards from her, maybe less, 75 yards. Okay. And what's the weather like at this time? Um, of year? I know people are going to think, well, it's Arizona, it's in the desert, it's hot. It wasn't. Like, we're in late January, early February. It was cold. It was freezing at night. This is one of those cases, too. Like, I just want to be just ultimately respectful for Jackie and Jackie's family. Mm -hmm. But there are some factors that are really important for the case here. The fact that it was cold really prevented major decomposition in her body. For the most part, the body's in really good shape when we find it. There's some animal activity, which you always get yeah, on any type of body dump. And he didn't bury her. He actually just drug her into some, like a little treat area and then put some branches on top of her. So the fact that her body is still pretty well preserved is a big deal. Right. Um, with her head though, significant decomp and that's where we had some animal activity so we didn't get as much from that she'd been drugged into this area and i want to spend a little bit of time though explaining 
processing a scene like this, if people are ever like, hey, they found her, confirm it, confirm it. Like, is that her? Yeah. They, we know they're working a body. You don't just pick her up and go. No. Everything around her for 100 yards, every direction, a, a diameter is now part of your a major crime scene. So you don't just run to the body, you slowly work your way in on a very deliberate path. You come back out on that path and then you slowly work out because we're looking for evidence, tire tracks, Did something fall out of his truck. Is there some type of forensic fibers that we can find? Like there's so much that goes into this. Mm -hmm. So it takes us about probably a day, day and a half to actually get to her body in a way that we could recover and get her to the medical examiner for an autopsy. Even after we remove her body, though, we're still there for There's days, still other evidence that you have to days. look at underneath her. One of the things that we note very quickly is there appears to be fairly significant blood soak where we find her. Like in the sand or and, the dirt? Yeah. I'm and assuming it was sandy. Yeah, it's kind of a sandy dirt because it's really close to a wash, like a dry wash bed as okay. well, dry river bed. And when we start looking too, it appears that she shot in the back of the head. It was pretty obvious just doing a little bit of investigation like, okay, so the bullets are going to be really, really important. If she was shot there, we don't know where she was shot, but given the blood soak that's there, we don't have that kind of blood soak in Jonathan's truck. Reasonable deduction is she was probably shot at that location. Recovering those rounds especially knowing that we have, remember the gun case and the bullet casing mm -hmm. that we seized from the house, yeah. being able to recover that round is huge. But we don't know exactly where she shot at as far as where around that area. So like, right. do we get a backhoe and just start digging up the whole river bottom? Like it's a major task. Our agency wasn't the best about having really quality equipment back then. We were, we're very fast growing. Agency. Yeah, we were yeah. fast growing. We had like this 1968, those of you, I'm really dating myself. There used to be a magazine called Ranger Rick. Mm -hmm. It was like a Boy Scout magazine and you could always buy like these really cheap metal detectors at the back. They had like the classifieds page. Did you order one? No, the police department did. We had, <laughs> so like, I'm like, hey, we got to find a bullet out here. And they're like, well, get the metal detector. And I'm like, I didn't know we had one. So I went in like the back of this crappy closet. There's this metal detector. And it's like the 1968 Ranger Rick. And you had mail to blow order. dust off of it when you yeah, pulled it out and it, of the Yeah, like closet. I opened up the battery thing and all the batteries had corroded together. So I go out there and of course it doesn't work. Uh -huh. And I kind of had a history of throwing temper tantrums on scenes about not having like, hey, this is a major case. Like, can we please do this right? Right. We're in Arizona. There's what's called the Superstition Mountains, and everybody thinks there's gold in their hills. So <laughs> actually using metal detectors in Apache it's Junction, a it's a big deal. There's a store, like a big store, that specializes in metal detectors. Okay. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to go buy some metal detectors because I have the, okay. the the police department Your credit card. business card. Yeah. So I get into this, and it's an old prospector guy in this metal detector store. Like He's got the crazy beard and everything. And I'm mm -hmm. telling him, like, hey, I've got to find a bullet He's like, well, what's your budget? <laughs> Money's no object. <laughs> the city's paying. So he's like, all right. And he starts building this thing. Like he's taking parts off the wall and like this custom thing. And it looks like this crazy thing out of like Buck Rogers. <laughs> he actually gives me this strap that looks like a bra. Okay. And he's like, okay. Like a harness. Yeah. He's like, put this on. And it's got like a hook right here in the middle of my chest. And this metal detector now, it's so heavy. You have to like hook it onto you. Okay. It's got a pair of headphones that goes with it that makes it looks like you're flying a 747. Yeah, you're like, doo, 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 yeah doo. and it's got a big LCD screen okay. on the front. And he's like, okay, so now what kind of bullets are you looking for? And I'm like, any bullet. If it's a bullet, he's like, okay, takes me out back. He's got this giant sandbox that they have different types of metal hidden in. Okay. 
and he goes and he finds a couple bullets and then he adjusts. There's probably 20 gauges on this damn thing. And he's adjusting all these gauges. On the LCD screen. Yes. And he's like, okay, it'll find bullets now. Okay, great. And he's like, are you guys going to use this for anything else? I'm like, no, sir, just bullet. And are you going to be the only one using it? No, anybody might use it on other cases. Like, oh, hang on. And he takes it back from, he goes in his work office and he takes out whiteout. Remember whiteout? He takes out whiteout. And on all the little knobs, he paints a line on the knob, and then he paints a line on the metal detector so they line up. Yeah. And then at the top, with his whiteout, he puts D-F-W-I. And he hands it back to me. He's like, all right, anybody at your police department can use that now. What does D-F-W-I stand for? Yeah. What? Don't fuck with it. <laughs> so he set it up and basically said, hey, don't, don't fuck I with it I have a now. handful of those around the house. Yeah, so right. Light light fixtures i've noticed yeah. that yeah so uh <laughs> i go back out there and cops are jerks and i'm saying that as one of the jerks right mm -hmm. like if we ever find reasons to make fun of other cops we're going to do yeah it. of course so i get out there in my truck that i've absolutely trashed now right so it already looks like i'm a meth head coming <laughs> out of some trailer park and i open all this stuff up and i have all these boxes and i have it on my tailgate and i'm putting all my stuff on i put my bra on i attach my metal detector uh -huh. i put my giant headphones oh they loved that oh i could hear the peanut gallery they're making fun of me left and right okay if it works it works the other sure. thing he gave me though was plastic shovels in a plastic bucket literally like what you would take to the sure. beach so you weren't picking them up on the metal detector Right. Okay. Because metal shovels pick up. And this plastic bucket, it looked like something you'd take to the beach. It had like yeah. a little colander type thing on the yeah. top of it. He picked it up at Walmart on his way Probably. He it. sold it to the police department for like 500 bucks, but I didn't care. Sure. It, by the way, that whole get up, it was almost $4,000. Oh, nice work. <laughs> Run the card. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did get in trouble for that later on, but that's okay. It's okay. You solved the case. So I get my plastic bucket, my plastic shovels, my stupid metal bra. detector with the bra, my dumb headphones. I can hear everybody making fun of me. And I go out there, and I kid you not, about the fourth pass, vroom, 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 it beeps. Mm -hmm. I look at the LCD screen. It doesn't just say, like, it's alerted. It says the word bullet. And where, in comparison to the body, did you find Right this? over where her head would have been. Okay. She was shot right where we found her, which we didn't know at the time when we first went out there, right? Okay. So at this point, everybody's still making fun of my, like, oh, he's going to the beach with these little plastic shovels. When you dig that ground up with plastic shovels, you can scan each shovel full of dirt. And because it's plastic, if the bullet's not in the shovel, you just throw it. You don't have to sift anything. And yeah, it, so you found it exactly where... And about the fourth... In the scoopful. Right, about the fourth scoop, the metal detector over the shovel goes off. You pour it in your little bucket with the little sifter, and I pour it in the bucket, and boom, there's my bullet. And we, nice. we find the bullet. And there was just one. We, we recover one, and it is pristine. Like, it is... And did it come back shape. with a match of what was in Nibin? We're going to get there. Okay. We're not there yet. Okay. The other issue is we don't have the gun. It'd be nice if we had the gun. At I the same just want to know. I know. So did we. Trust me. <laughs> so did we. Um, at this point, too, we're also getting some of the autopsy stuff back. And we're learning okay. she did have a skull fracture. And when we saw it, we thought, like, well, of course, she's been shot in the back of the head. There is a doctor at the Maricopa County Medical Examiner, Dr. Fulginetti. She is world-renowned. She is amazing. And she does a lot of reconstruction mm -hmm. on skulls. She can look at a skull and actually tell you the order in which things happen that causes mm -hmm. fractures. Right. And what she discerns is that there's actually an orbital fracture and a skull fracture on Jackie's head on the, I think I believe it was on the right side. She had severe blunt force trauma to the head before she was shot. Mm -hmm. So kind of back to where you were saying, maybe he got mad at her. 
it does support that something happened at some point that night where she gets hit and she gets hit hard. Probably well, especially a if she's of times. aspirating blood in the car. Yes, it starts to really start painting this picture that whatever's happening, especially in that neighborhood, that time frame of when they're in the neighborhood, I believe it was just an all out brutal rape. There is findings that she was a sexual assault victim, fairly brutal sexual assault. The methodologies of her injuries, though, as far as where she was shot, the skull fracture, the blunt force trauma to the head prior to being shot, all that is very obvious at the time of the autopsy. And we are going to have to wait a little bit for the toxicology results to come back, which hopefully will fill in some more gaps if we could. But we are also starting to get some of the DNA back now. We put a rush on all the DNA. The DNA that we recovered out of the truck, the blood, is all Jackie's. So on both windows and the little door area there, all mm-hmm. that's going to come back to Jackie. The DNA on the shirt, the blood that we saw on the shirt with the gun it's in Jackie's. shot. Jackie's as well. The gun matches the round that we recovered from the scene. So we have a casing and the casing is the part that they put the gunpowder in that stays, that's ejected, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's ejected from the gun. The bullet, the round is what's fired. Sure. The casing that we recovered from the house is a similar match, most likely a match, of being used in the same type of gun, the same caliber of gun, the same make and model as the round that we found. But there's still a few issues in identifying that that round came from that gun. So we're still working on that part. But we can't find the gun at this point. The next piece that comes back is disturbing. And there's a lot of conjecture that was brought up in trial. I'll talk about it a little bit, but I am sold on the concept. She has GHB in her system. And if you remember from, oh my God, that is GHB a is it's drug. a date rape drug. Um, now, why there's conjecture at trial is during decomposition, the body will produce small amounts of GHB. In this particular case, it is my opinion because of the amounts and the research that everybody did and all the experts that came in and testified on it, he gave her GHB. So if you remember, though, the sister said she called her when they were leaving the neighborhood. And she wasn't coherent. She wasn't coherent. She just didn't sound like herself. And that's also very consistent with this GHB GHB. finding. Correct. I take a little bit of peace, I guess, for lack of a better word. I really, really hope that he gave her significant GHB and that the drive out there and when he shoots her, she's unconscious. This is also kind of supported by the scene. The position that she was in when I believe she was shot is very unnatural. Like Mm -hmm. anybody who's conscious and moving, I just don't think you would be in that position. Her legs are really in an awkward position where he pulls her into this tree. So there's a little piece of me that hopes that, you know what, maybe she was just unconscious for this Maybe she didn't realize this Because there's nothing that haunts you more at night than to try to put yourself in her shoes and imagining or to be your parent, her parents, right. wondering what she was experiencing, what she was actually feeling happened to her. Right. And that's always the hard part of these investigations, right? Because even though it's hard to talk about, it's hard to hear. Those are the things that make the evidentiary part of this case so substantial in court. In Arizona, it takes a long time sometimes to go to court. Uh, this case isn't going to actually go to trial for four years. Oh, wow. um, so okay. it takes a while. However, during that four-year period, some random traffic stop we find the gun. He got rid of the gun right after the murder. I think he sold it to somebody. So it went around on the street for a while. And on a traffic stop, somebody picks up a gun, runs the serial number, it comes back as our gun. Mm. So now we actually have the gun. And when we get all those pieces, the round that we found in the creek bed where Jackie's body was recovered is from Jonathan's gun. So now we have a positive match. So it's strengthened that piece up as well. Mm -hmm. 
the county attorney, the prosecutor on this case, is going to file this as a death penalty, given Jonathan's history, constantly in trouble, and then just the sheer brutal nature of this case. How he committed this crime. Right? Yeah, it, it definitely qualifies as a death penalty case in Arizona. Even though this case is somewhat convoluted in the beginning, and it takes a little bit to get through all the things, the evidence is overwhelming. This was not a trial that oh, are we going to be able to convict him? No, we absolutely know we're going to convict him. The, the evidence in this thing is overwhelming. In the autopsy report, was it also discerned that she was raped for sure? Yeah. And again, I'm not going to get into those details. I just right. don't think it's proper. But I think it's safe to say it was a violent sexual assault that she experienced. Again, I'm hoping that she's unconscious. Mm -hmm. And it was Jonathan. There's DNA recovered. Okay. Um, and by the way, the other lab result we get back is Jonathan's DNA is also on her panties. They actually recover semen from the panties that matches Jonathan. That he threw away. Yeah. So okay. like I said, overwhelming evidence. Sure. But it's a death penalty case. So... If you're not familiar with the death penalty cases and how they work, especially in Arizona, there's two trials, technically. There's the first trial to say, is he innocent or guilty? And once that comes back, they go to the second phase. So in this one, the evidence speaks for itself. The jury, I, very short deliberation, they find him guilty. Good. As soon as they find him guilty, they start the second part of this trial, which is, does he go to death row? And do they actually sentence him to death mm -hmm. or do they sentence him to life in prison? And what did they do? They sentenced him to death. So okay. Jonathan Burns is currently on death row. When you sentence somebody to death row, it automatically gets an appeal. So the appeal process is included in that whole process, and they look at everything. Mm -hmm. And in, Jonathan's had a couple appeal processes so far. And they've been denied. They've all been denied up to this point. The judges who do the review of these appeals have noted some things on the case that they're like, eh, it's not overwhelming enough to reverse it, but it is a little bit concerning. One of the things, and I'm just putting this out there because I understood it when it happened, and I understand as a family member wanting to do it, but we have to remember the justice system is delicate. Are you talking about delicate. wanting to do the gonna, death penalty? You, no, or, I'm going to get into what? what the judges are being a little bit of like, eh, that's not the way. When you are doing the second part of the, the hearing, the trial, f to see if somebody's going to get sentenced to death. There's what's called victim impact statements. Okay. And it's the opportunity for the victim's family to, to literally address to the jury. Like they get to present to the jury why Jackie was Very such a special like person. Very much like what Maria did in our Miami case. Yes. Okay. It was over two hours, multiple people, a lot of slideshows. At least one person had never even met Jackie. Oh. And the judges who are reviewing this case on the appeals is like, hey, we understand the importance of a victim impact statement, but this one's almost a little it's bit It's a little overdone. less than impartial at that yeah, point. Yeah, because at that point, are you influencing the jury so much that they just love Jackie and hate Jonathan so much that they want to kill him? Or mm -hmm. is it legally justified by the law that what the elements we have to meet? Sure. And I agree that there has to be a victim impact. I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. But mm -hmm. if you ever hear cases where prosecutors... But there's are, a fine balance. Yes. And I, I've seen prosecutors kind of get blasted in the media like, well, yeah, but why didn't they present more of the victim's family or... What their history was yes, like. Yes, for or, things like uh -huh. this. It is a good thing to be careful. So let's go to March of 2023. The U.S. Supreme Court, like not one of the appellates, not the Ninth Circuit, but literally the U.S. Supreme Court actually issues a order, if you will, that death penalties in Arizona have to be reviewed because Arizona has been violating a U.S. constitutional law 
for years, for 30 years. I'm assuming this was probably under a writ of certiorari that was driven up to the Supreme Court. You are so smart. Yeah, I can't even pronounce that word. (laughs) But yeah, it's basically like an order. Well, it's when people or a body of someone, delegates, whoever it is, decides that, hey, there is a process that needs to be looked at here at a higher court level. Jonathan Burns is evil. He's only done evil in his life. In every opportunity he has, he continues to be evil. This guy is a threat to society. There's no doubt about it. So I'm kind of getting frustrated when I first read this, like the poor family. Here we are 2023 and we're dealing with this all over again. Right. But then I read the issue and I agree with it. And now I'm really (laughs) conflicted again because I'm understanding why. And basically what's been happening for 30 years in Arizona is judges have prevented the defense from telling jurors life in prison means life in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay. So even if he appealed it, there's no a chance he would get out of prison. Correct. Prosecutors have been arguing, well, we don't know what laws are going to change in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So we can't guarantee he may not have parole. If he's dead, he's dead. Mm-hmm. But if he's sitting in prison, there's always a minute chance that something could happen that he gets out. So they decided 30 years ago that the defense can't bring it up, prosecution can't bring it up, the jury can't know that it means without the possibility of parole. So what's happened with that is a lot of times these cases get presented to a jury where they're told he is such a menace to society, he can never be in society again. And the only real way to ensure that is to give him the death penalty, mm-hmm. which in truth... We can also sentence him to life in prison. Unless 45 years from now, life in prison without the possibility of parole changes to, well, we can make an exception. Well, what about the death penalty changing in 45 years? Right. That argument doesn't hold water because all everything can change in 45 well, years. Well, he's had appeals, though, for the to get off of the death penalty. Right. But what's happening now is all of these death penalty cases are being reviewed within Arizona now, and they're probably going to have to redo the sentencing phase. Now, he he will always be guilty. He's still going to stay in prison for life. Just his sentence might change. For the death penalty. They're going to have to represent the entire case to a jury to make the decision. Does he do life in prison without the possibility of parole? Or does, or does he get, he the, get death the death penalty? penalty still? It's pending right now, so there's no dates coming up. But... Mm-hmm. We're going to have to keep an eye on this one to see. That will be interesting. Maybe we can do an update. How many cases are they? Are they doing every case that's sitting on death row right now? There's like a, this? Yeah, but there's not that many. I want to say there's eight, maybe nine. One of the people died naturally in prison already, so that one's mm-hmm. out. There's two others that have already been looked at, and I don't know what happened with that, but there's six pending right now. Jonathan Burns is one of those six pending, and there's no dates given. Interesting. And that is Jackie's story. Mm. Thank you for sharing her story. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, you always have cases as a detective that stick with you forever. Mm -hmm. Jackie's case is one of those that I will never forget. Like, it it had a pretty significant impact on me personally. So I think and professionally as well. Yeah, I would agree. We can talk maybe a little bit about in a tea room at some point. Yeah. Next week's episode, Mm -hmm. Poached is an Elkicide, um, one of many that we will be presenting to you. It's going to be a series of episodes that we have poached, which are animal crimes. So 
hope you tune in for a very lively telling of animal incidents that we were involved with. We look forward to seeing you at next week's Socialite Crime Club.